This is the Josh Hammer Show. What a thrill it is to bring onto the show this week a man who's been a good friend for a number of years now and perhaps just as important, actually co-officiated my marriage literally two months ago. That would be Rabbi Svi Drizen. Rabbi Drizen lives in Dallas, Texas. He is the founder and head honcho of the in-town Chabad, the wonderful Chabad there in uptown Dallas, Texas, where I was a fairly active member for my two and a half year stint there living in Dallas. We remain good friends to this day. Rabbi Drizen, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Josh Hammer, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, let me let me officially on air once again wish you and your darling wife Shira Mazaltov congratulations on the beautiful wedding that you had. Well, it couldn't have been as beautiful as it was with without you and your your stalwart Rebitson eighty, who, who who of course is a heroic figure for all all current parishioners and alumni of the in-town Chabad community in Dallas, Texas. It really was just a beautiful, beautiful chatuna, beautiful wedding ceremony, and you were an indispensable part of the, of the of the whole weekend, my friend. So it's great to great to touch base with you here again on our program. I want to ask first just about Chabad, about the movement within Judaism with which you are affiliated, because Chabad, as the listeners know, has been in the news quite a bit recently with the very exciting and perhaps eccentric new president down under, Javier Malay, who has just recently been in Israel, who is very connected to the Chabad movement. And that's given Chabad, I think, a, a lot of, of global headlines recently. So it might be worth unpacking a little bit for the listeners here. What, what exactly is Chabad and how is it different from other strands of Judaism? Oh, that's a uh interesting question. So Javier Malay, uh, my understanding, um, is trying to do things differently and has a pretty broad view rooted in a lot of interesting economic theory and also has found tremendous inspiration within um, Judaism. And particularly Chabad would make a likely home for that kind of inspiration because Chabad, which is a Hasidic group, you know, hundreds of years old, um, has a in America under the late uh, Rebbe, who is the leader of Chabad, really took this view that Judaism, while it has a particular message to the people who are part of the covenant, i.e. Jews, also has a very broad global message that um, that everyone in the world, um, the Rebbe thought, ought to hear. And that is that there is a one God in this world and that we are all responsible for each other um, and that goodness will overcome darkness um, if you do good. And um, the Rebbe corresponded in his life with presidents, prime ministers, all sorts of people in politics, military, businessmen, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. Um, one of my favorite stories about the Rebbe's engagement in politics was um, there was a young, the first black congresswoman uh, was a woman named uh, Shirley Chisholm. And she was, I, I don't know if it was the 80s or the 90s. Um, uh, she 
she was from Brooklyn and they put her on like the farming committee or something just to like stick it to her. Like, what is a girl, you know, what does a girl from Brooklyn know about farming or something like that? And she had an audience with the Rebbe, uh, the leader of Chabad. And she kind of complained that, you know, they have me out to pasture uh, on this committee and they're trying to marginalize me. And the Rebbe said to her, what do you mean? You're, you're on, on, on this committee that's responsible for food. Like there's hungry children in America that you could, you know, use your, your clout and your influence. And she, I believe started the snap program based on this inspiration. And she tells the story. You can, you can Google it. So there is this, um, this conversation that is potentially happening and happening between various for Hasidic Jews, Chabad, that think that uh, we think, me being a rabbi, that we have a message for everyone in this world, um, not one necessarily. Judaism does not believe that people should convert to Judaism if they're not Jewish. However, there are certain fundamental principles um, that are applicable broadly, and it's no shock that America, we have these debates around the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are seen as by people everywhere in the world um, as bedrock, a bedrock code of morality. Has something that has to be understood, but you know, Judaism as such certainly has what to talk to the world about. So that's a great segue, actually. That's pretty much exactly where I want to take the conversation. So let's let's talk about this delineation between particularism and universalism within Judaism. So so, so Judaism and Christianity are, are, are similar, of course, in many ways. We, we, we share large swaths of, of the Bible. We are, are two of the three largest monotheistic religions in the world. Both come ultimately from from Abraham and and, and so forth there. But. They, they are different in some ways as well, because Ju- Judaism, some would describe it as a quote unquote faith. But the way that I was always taught it is that it's, it's probably more appropriate to think of Judaism as, as a nation or a peoplehood. I mean, this is right out of the Bible. This is right out of Genesis, right, where where, where God uses the verbiage of, of nation, uh, obviously not in, in English, but that 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 is a translation there. Whereas in, in Christianity, the whole notion of the Gospels and, and John 316 is, is it's more of a true faith based thing. It's more of it's, it's more inside of the mind between the ears of, of thinking as opposed necessarily to being born in, in, into a nation and so forth. But having said that, I, I'm fascinated by the point that you're bringing out here, which is that Judaism does have a universalist message to the world as well. And you, you see that in Judaism with the seven laws of Noah, the Noahide laws, and in particular, above all, what you're getting at here with with the Ten Commandments. So I would love, Rabbi Dresden, if you could just talk a little bit more about your view of the Ten Commandments specifically, which we just read about in our weekly Torah portion in our Parsha just a couple of weeks ago. Talk a little bit more about the Ten Commandments, not necessarily from a strictly Jewish standpoint, but how you see the Ten Commandments as being just the bedrock of perhaps America, perhaps Western civilization, really just how you see it. Oh, that's uh, there's a lot there. And uh, it's a great question. So I would say so in, in Jewish tradition, it's not actually called the Ten Commandments. It's called the Aseret Hadibrot, which literally translates as the Ten Utterances. Now, why is that important? 
because um, while I'm no expert in Christianity by any stretch of the imagination, I barely understand Judaism. And there's so many <laughs> books that I still haven't read. I mean, I have this whole library behind me, right? Um, I can barely keep up. Um, the The first of the 10 utterances in Christianity, I believe, is universally seen as not a commandment. I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of um, the house of slavery um, and took you out of Egypt. In Judaism, we do see that as the first of the 10. And just those words alone, I think you can build an entire world outlook um, from that. And I think it speaks to the unique um perspective that Judaism has vis-a-vis God. Because what happens here is, if you think about this verse, I am the Lord, your God. This is not in third person. This is in first person, God speaking to you. Not just the Jewish people um, who were standing there, but you as the reader and every person who's ever read it, I am the Lord, your God. I am yours. When you talk about that level of intimacy, of a connection, you're talking about something really interesting. You're not talking about a God of, say, blind love that loves all equally. You're not talking about the source, the energy, something that is the way most people think about God as distant. When people think about children, you think when I ask my students, where's God? You know, everyone kind of points up. There's this instinctiveness about Western society that says God is distant. And what the first of the 10, the big 10 are telling us is I am the Lord, your God. God is speaking to you directly in the most intimate way possible. God is saying, I am the Lord, your God, who just took you out of Egypt. The Jewish people are standing there seven weeks after like the most traumatic, wild escape from being slaves. Imagine you just escaped and you don't know who it is who's doing all these things. And suddenly you hear this voice, all the Jewish people together here. I am the Lord, your God, who just did this for you. I am yours. Like there could not be a more intimate conversation. And when you think about an intimate relationship with God, a direct one without intermediaries, without anything else, but me and God, God who talks to me, and thus God who hears me and also by extension expects certain things of me. That is a whole ethos of choice, of responsibility, of connection, of that you fundamentally matter, of all the billions of things in this world and all of time God chooses to speak to you in the first person, an entire worldview is right there built, um, just there in that first statement. Well, we're going to take it to a very quick commercial break here. We're joined by Rabbi Svi Drizzen. He's our special guest this week. He's the founder 
of In Town Chabad in Dallas, Texas. We're going deep on theology this week. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more with Rabbi Drizzen. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So hopefully those words are very comforting, what you just said, for those of, of any religious faith, uh, of Jews, Christians, anyone who who struggles with the notion of intimacy with our Creator, who struggles with the idea of prayer, are my prayers heard? There's the ever-perplexing question surrounding theodicy, why do bad things happen to good people, and so forth. So hopefully what you just said is comforting with them, but I want, I want to go back a little bit to to kind of what I was asking before that, which is the idea of all of this as, as the bedrock itself. Without the Ten Commandments, obviously by definition you don't get Judaism, but you don't get any of this. I, I mean, you don't get Christianity, you don't, you don't get Western civilization, you don't get America. I mean, going back to the founding of America, I mean, Rabbi Tzvi, I know that you're well-learned in, in the American founding, as I would like to think I am a bit myself as well. You, know, you, you can go back to the founding era debates o- over what the great seal of the United States was supposed to be. I mean, Benjamin Franklin famously wanted the great seal of the United States to be Moses parting the Red Sea. He lost that debate. The great seal ended up being something else. But you see repeated references even to the idea of the exodus from Egypt culminating, of course, in Revelation and Mount Sinai throughout the literature of the American founding. This, this is bedrock stuff. I mean, I mean, this is in the American DNA. I would argue it's in the Western civilization DNA in general there. So I was hoping that you could just talk a little bit more about that. I mean, Le, you know, Leo Strauss, the great political philosopher, has this, his famous theory where he basically says that you have a double helix, so to speak, as to what is Western civilization. You have reason from the Greeks, and then you have revelation from Mount Sinai or Jerusalem. Is that how you see it? I mean, I mean, do you, ac- do you accept kind of the Straussian idea that reason and revelation, with revelation being there in Mount Sinai, is, is that Western civilization to you, or do you see it a little more differently? Um, you know, I am not sure that I understand all civilization to be able to uh, differentiate what is Western civilization. But I can certainly say that um, insofar as America uh, is concerned and the United States of America, it, it seems patently obvious to anyone with a sense of history that America was founded 
um, in a covenantal way with and it was founded on an idea. Um, it was not a country that was a priority, a country of people that just kind of evolved into a government. It was a group of people who very consciously um, decided to change their course of history and create a very intentional type of a, of a place that was based on the principles, our constitution, principles of liberty, uh, the pursuit of happiness, all the things that are delineated in, in our founding documents. And, and many, if not most of those, the thinkers that powered that were very deeply related in some kind of religious tradition. Um, you know, Christianity, certainly with a certain, with a heavy, with a heavy um, dose of the Old Testament, as they called the Torah. You couldn't, now the question I think that is most on people's minds today is whether that is still relevant in the world today. Can you have, can America just be a country of its people? Like, I don't know, France's or, or Zimbabwe? Or is there still need to be something particularistic about our country? And that is some of the real arguments that are happening today. Um, can we continue in this, um, you know, United States of America, can it remain united without a common, you know, common bedrock principles? This is where some of the great debates of our country are going. And, and it seems, you know, it, it seems... I'll tell you what, what's happening in Israel is very instructive, ought to be very instructive um, because we experienced a little bit of it after 9-11, but not to the same degree. Country, we, we tend to go sideways when we're not connected with our purpose. Um, when we think that there isn't danger, um, people tend to start bickering about all sorts of things and there's factions and there's politics and people get vindictive. And that's what was going on in Israel, very much so up until October 7th. And then it comes this tremendous attack. And suddenly people realize that all of these things are not important. And what's important are the founding principles. Israel has a set of founding principles that every single person in Israel is firmly behind, which is that this is the Jewish people need a homeland. And this is the only place that they can go. In America, we have been living in such incredible peace and with so much freedom that we have the luxury of being aggravated by, you know, micro microaggressions and things like that. And hopefully we don't need to, um, suffer some kind of major attack to um, come together and rededicate ourselves to our purpose. And our purpose is fundamentally just, fundamentally holy, and absolutely based in, in, in principles 
that are first articulated in the Torah and the in in the Old Testament. The idea that man is created in the image of God is right there in chapter one of of Genesis. And that idea endows man with a special liberty. Man does not is not a creature of anyone's rule. He's in the image of God that nobody rules. And therefore, says Locke, you enter into society in a contract, which is a contract that's agreed upon. You cannot take away the fundamental human dignity. So these are principles that are absolutely fundamental to um to um to America and the and based on generally ideas that were out there in the Torah. Now, where I would say where we've gone wrong is that to say that liberty means that you're free of any responsibilities yes. is preposterous because man is in the image of God, true. And they are free to be who they are. That doesn't mean that they don't have deep responsibilities towards other people, towards the generations that came before them, towards their parents, towards their purpose. And it is for every single person in this world to find their purpose. So there's so much good stuff to unpack in there. One thing that I want to highlight, because this is a point that I've made many times over the years, and I, th- I think it's so important. I-, I get sick to my stomach when I hear people cite the Jeffersonian rhetoric in the Declaration of Independence. And it's true that he begins that famous clause, we hold these truths to be self-evident. He is appealing to universal reason. He is obviously a student of John Locke and the European Enlightenment. But it's just so important what you said, that this idea that that all men are created equal, that we are all that we are made in the image of God. It is, it's right there in Genesis one twenty seven. You know, man and male and female, he created them. We're all made in the image of God. So yes, you you could argue that it's universally obvious that you can just use the old noggin, as they say, to come up and derive this conclusion. But you also could just open up the Torah, the Bible, and just see it right there for yourself. But I, I want to then follow up, Rabbi Tzvi, on on this other point you made, which is also just so important about a, a perverted and you might say perverse conception of liberty and how I think that is just so increasingly degrading, degrading not just this country, but so many countries around the world there. This this idea that liberty is the quote-unquote freedom to do anything and everything imaginable under the sun is a very modern, relativistic, post-World War II conception. I think a more traditional view of liberty would be that you have the liberty, the freedom to lead a holy and virtuous life, as you just said, in the image of God. In many ways, I actually think of Orthodox Judaism as being the OG, the OG conception, you might say, the original conception of what liberty actually means, because we have 613 commandments. We are commanded to live according to very certain guardrails, very certain strictures there. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? The the Jewish view, given the commandments, what we what we call the mitzvot of liberty. What is what is the Jewish view of liberty? Uh, so. Great question, and I, I hope I'm up to the task of answering it. But I, I would say the way that I would um, kind of frame it is in the famous uh, biblical verse where Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, this is the let my people go, the rallying cry of so many of the enslaved and um, oppressed of the generations. Yet the second part of that verse is so not well known 
let my people go so they may serve me in the wilderness. Moses told God to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they may serve me. There is in that first of the Ten Commandments, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, thus your allegiance is to me. Bob Dylan said (laughs) it um, best in one of his great songs. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. The idea that man will be untethered for any amount of time is nonsense. You will be in service of something. It may be you may be serving your fear, your ego, uh, other people's uh, your what what other people think about you. Um, but you're going to be serving something, and the call for the ages, for all man, is for God says, you need to serve me and not serve anything else. Because if you serve anything else, you will be enslaved. And the only service that is liberating is mine. But on a very, on a very practical level, there's always, you know, growing up religiously, there was always this question, you know, what, what does it mean to be free? Are we free? We have all these obligations. And, you know, as you mature, it, it, becomes, a, it becomes an interesting dialogue. Anyone, you know, you know, you're Josh, you live in Miami, the city of partying and, you know, Bitcoin revolution, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not a big crypto guy myself, Rabbi, I got to tell you. Um, so, but, but, you know, you're talking about, uh, men who are, who, you know, what do I need? The, the obligations of family life and children, you know, I, all I want to do is, you know, party and what, why be tethered? I want to be free. And anyone who, who can think a little bit past last night's bender understands that, um, you can, um, you, you, if you, if you want to have true freedom, it often means being very much attached. If you want to have true freedom, it often times means being very much attached. No, that's 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 profound stuff there, and and that is the more traditional conception of, of liberty of freedom. Before I think it was ultimately changed for the worse in in the latter part of of this last century. Um, in our time remaining here, you said one thing that I do just want to follow up on once again there. You made reference to this idea that you have to be attached or have meaning to something, whether you find that in, in God, in, in religious authority, in religious scripture, is, is a question. So how do you view some of these other movements, for lack of a better term, that have arisen over the over the past let's call it 20, 30 years, that from my perspective seem to be trying to fill that void in the secular soul that is always yearning for some sort of meaning. And on the one hand, you have the gender ideology, you have the transgender movement. I would argue that you have the the radical environmental justice movement, the idea that that the earth is, is, is a godlike figure. Is that kind of what you're getting at here, this idea that if you don't have God himself, capital G God, then you're going to find lower G gods elsewhere in your life to try to fill that void. Is that the point you're getting at? Yes, but I wouldn't be as uh, stressed as you are about the latest isms. Uh, these, <laughs> these, these have been, they, these things have been around forever. 
every single generation has its um, seductions. It has its temptations. You know, the Jewish people who had just seen God at Sinai suddenly um, are worshiping a golden calf 40 days later. Um, you know, we we tend to, uh, many people tend to make such a big deal about all the things that are current and, and they go crazy about it and give it so much energy. Unfortunately, I think it's just used a little bit to divide people, you know, all the things that people who are traditional are scared about. It's not any worse than it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Every generation has its temptations. I think we would do a lot better with articulating what we are about than obsessing over the perverse ideologies of the day. Whatever they are, they're just, they're nothing. They don't recreate because they don't have children. And they are just are are just a every ten years. It's a whole brand new ism. Let us build beautiful families. Let us articulate what it means to trust in God, to live a life of purpose and meaning, and smile and be ethical. That is the greatest um, uh, advertisement for religion for a God-based life, focusing on what the ideologies and what the latest idols are, you know, fill in the blanks, whatever it is, you know, that's, that's, that's just, you know, that's stirring the pot. Yeah. Look, that's, that, that's my job as, as, as a political commentator and columnist and, 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 and radio and podcast those, of course, but uh, yeah, I, and that's my job as rabbi to uh, you know, <laughs> to, to disabuse me of, of of those notions. Yes, okay, of, of course. I, I wouldn't expect anything less. Wouldn't hope for anything less. So why don't we wrap up on this note? Then you referred earlier. You, you used the word covenantal to describe the American founding, which, which is a very powerful word. Obviously, the the notion of a covenant is imbued throughout the Bible. It is very much a part of Judaism, is very much a part of, of the Jewish peoplehood, the idea of the Abrahamic covenant and the other covenants that are that are discussed in, in, in the Torah. And I, I want to get your thoughts then. If America is a covenantal nation, what does it say about what we are currently seeing out there in the aftermath of October 7th, the unambiguously skyrocketing anti-Semitism has this covenantal nation lost sight with the people of the covenant? And if so, as a related corollary to that, does that make you sour and pessimistic about the future of the Jews in America or the future of America in general? Um, absolutely not. I think um, the I mean, just look at the statistics. There's a lot of the rage machine and everyone wants to um, share every instance of every anti-Semite doing something on, you know, everywhere. And sure, there's it's it's disturbing what's going on and what's being accepted, yada, yada. But the 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 statistics show that, that the American people, by and large, are squarely behind um, um, Israel. And, you know, I live in Dallas, Texas. I have only encountered um, people who are supportive of the Jewish people. So I'm very optimistic. 
That being said, we did have our Jewish count, one of the two Jewish council people uh, this past Sunday had, you know, I don't know, fake dead babies strewn around her lawn from from, you know, some anti-Semitic activists. So is does that exist? Yeah. But um, we have a tradition that in every generation there will be people who rise to destroy us. I am profoundly optimistic about America. That being said, um, there is uh, anti-Jewish rhetoric and anti-Jewish activity is is generally a bellwether of the health of a society. And the more you see it, the more one ought to pay attention. So I don't mean to poo-poo it in any sort of way. I think it's real. Um, but it's definitely shocking, <laughs> just by and large, shocking that the world is the world. I mean, but we have a lot of work to do, my friend. We have a lot of work to do. Well, we have a lot of work to do, and I'm really thrilled to to be in the fight. I'll be in a slightly different capacity, but to be in the fight for America, the fight for the Jewish people, and the fight for Western civilization with you, my good friend. So Rabbi Svidrizen, once again, is the founder and the overall head honcho of the In-Town Chabad in Dallas, Texas. You can learn more about the In-Town Chabad at theintownchabad.com. Rabbi Drizen, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Josh, Thank you for having me. 